rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. And those two verses, I want you to notice five really simple truths about God that are essential to working against the culture of death. Truth number one is really simple. It's that God is. He exists. He's real. He's not made up. He's not a figment of our imagination. Notice Solomon begins with three words, unless the Lord. Whether you believe in him or not, God is. Perhaps some of you are here because somebody invited you here. We got a baby dedication at the end of the service. Some of you are here for that. And you really don't believe any of this stuff. But listen, whether you believe in him or not, he exists. He's real. He is who he is. But it is no coincidence that in our culture, alongside the rise of abortion, has been a decline in the belief in God. It is Far easier to exterminate a life you cannot see if you do not believe in the God you cannot see. So, if we're going to fight against the culture of death, we need to believe that God is. But it's not enough to just believe in some nebulous deity out there. We must believe in the right God. And Solomon continues with the second truth about God, that our God, the true God, the real God, the only God, is a God who acts. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. King Solomon wisely understands that God is not like some watchmaker that that winds up a watch and then lets it go. God is actively involved in his creation. He acts to fulfill his sovereign purposes for all of humanity. We sang it earlier. You are sovereign over us. We serve a God who acts in human history. You can't even build a house, Solomon says, and have it seen to completion unless God ordains that it be so. He's sovereign. He acts. Now, there is a temptation here to say that if God's actions are ultimately decisive, then my actions don't matter. Just don't do anything. It doesn't matter. Uh, John Calvin, a 16th century pastor, uh, helps us here. He says, Solomon does not condemn what God approves, and certainly not the labor men undertake gladly at God's command and offer to him as an acceptable sacrifice. But to keep men from being blinded by pride and from grasping at what belongs to God, he warns them that hard work wins success only so far as God blesses our labor. Or, in the words of another pastor 200 years ago named William Plummer, the true Christian works as if he believed not and believes as if he wrought not. In other words, work as if it all depends on you and trust as if it all depends on God. That's the the balance that we're called to live in as Christians. Believing that God is a sovereign God who acts is not an excuse to sit back, say, let go and let God, let me do nothing and just see what happens. No, belief in the sovereignty of God propels action to follow in the footsteps of our active, acting God. Now, the greatest example of God acting in human history is not in building some house, even the great and majestic house that Solomon built. 
the temple. The greatest evidence of our God who acts in history is when he sent his own son to rescue his people. If you know the story of the Bible, you know that our, our first parents disobeyed God, Adam and Eve, in the garden. They had one job, don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Didn't take long and they disobeyed. And as a result, sin, like a cancer, entered into the human ecosystem. Death and decay and destruction became a part of this world, and God acted. He, he, he gave us a, a, a foresight of that action in killing an animal to cover over the nakedness of Adam and Eve. But the ultimate covering would come not by an animal skin, but by the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that God acts in human history and we are brought in right relationship with God, not by our actions, but by his, by trusting in the work of Christ. Now, perhaps you're tempted to think that was a long time ago and besides, Jesus isn't physically here anymore. Surely he doesn't really care what women do with their bodies. If you're tempted to think that, you must know that number three, God sees. The third truth about God that we want to understand from our text is that God sees. Verse one, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. King Solomon is basically saying you can have all the best security in the world, but unless God is watching over you, you're wasting your time. The simple truth that we learn here is that God sees. He sees to protect and watch over his people. And he also sees when we sin and when we disobey. Although some have been more brazen in their celebration of abortion in our culture, it's still pretty taboo in the religious community, isn't it? It's not the type of topic we celebrate in the religious community that and yet there are perhaps thousands of people in American churches every week secretly carrying the shame of a past abortion. Perhaps even some in this room this morning. Dear friend, nobody may know, but God sees. I wonder if there's a man or a woman in this room who was under, overwhelmed by the guilt and the shame of a past abortion. Dear friend, if that's you, you can run to Jesus. You can run to Jesus. You will find a God whose mercy is more than your sin. You will find a God whose forgiveness runs deeper. Listen to the words of a Puritan preacher named Thomas Watson. He said, Oh, the heavenly indulgence and kindness of God to his people. He, re he remembers everything about them but their sins. He writes down their good thoughts and speeches in a merciful book of remembrance, but their sins are as if they had never been. They are carried into the land of oblivion. Dear Christian, God knows the number of hairs on your heads. He knows the number of your days. All of those things and more are written in his books, but your sin is not because it was paid for at the cross if your faith is in Jesus. Perhaps you hear that and you say, well, that feels just too good to be true. How can the God who sees all things be that gracious? It's because, fourth truth about God, God gives. 
We serve a God whose very nature is to overflow in giving. Look at verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Solomon's point here is that those who trust the Lord in the midst of their hard work and their labors will enjoy the gift of sleep. Those who do not are working and striving in vain. The simple basic truth here is that we serve a God who gives. He gives to his people. He gives simple things like sleep and other things like the gift of children, which we'll talk about in a moment. But listen, dear brother, sister, friend, did you know that believing that God is a giving God is essential to being a Christian? Listen to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, and what it says about faith. 11 verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe two things, that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do you believe that your God, the God of the Bible, the God that sent his own son to die in your place is at heart, at root level, he is a God that overflows in giving. One of the reasons why we can believe this is because our God is Trinity. He exists in a perfect relationship of giving of himself, Father, to the Son, to the Spirit. That's just a tiny little preview for my talk on Tuesday Night at Theology. I hope you'll be there. We believe that God gives because it's his nature. It's who he is. And ultimately, the fifth truth about God from our text is that God loves Notice who God blesses with the gift of sleep. It's his beloved. His beloved. Now Solomon is not saying that God only gives sleep to those whom he loves. If God gives rain to the just and the unjust, then certainly he gives sleep to the just and the unjust too, right? But to his beloved, to those who are in community and covenant relationship with God, to the Christians, to those who belong to God through Jesus Christ, your good night's sleep was an overflow of God's incredible love to you. And if you did not sleep well last night, dear Christian, if you didn't sleep well, let me remind you that the best example of God's love for you is not your good night's sleep, but what Christ did on the cross. That's the best example. You are loved, dear Christian. This is love, 1 John 4 says. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, to be the propitiation for our sins. Dear friend, do you know this love? You can know it today, not by working for it, not by trying harder, not by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, not by joining a church, not by putting money in a box, but by running to Christ and believing that he really lived a sinless life, really died a sinner's death, and really rose from the dead so that whoever believes in him can have everlasting life. Would you run to him, friend? Would you run to him today? Now, these are the truths about God that are absolutely essential for us to resist a culture of death. And notice how these are all just simple gospel truths, aren't they? That God is that God works, he acts in human history, that God gives, that, that he loves, that he sees. And now is the part where perhaps I might step on your toes a bit. Let's consider number two from our text, the truth about children. The truth about children. 
In verses 3 to 5, Solomon shifts his focus from the truth about God to the truth about children. And we could say that upstream from the abortion issue is a worldview that has suppressed three essential truths about children. First of all, children are from God. Children are from God. Look in your Bibles at verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Now that word heritage literally means an inheritance. So children are like an inheritance. But notice that God is the giver of this inheritance, which means that God is the author of life. This is not a minor note in a minor psalm in the Old Testament. This is a major theme throughout the Bible. Genesis 21 verse 2, Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Genesis 25, 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Genesis 29, 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Genesis 30, 22, God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. Psalm 113, verse 9, he gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Psalm 139, verse 13, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Jeremiah 1, 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God is the author of life. Now, you might hear that. And you might think, well, those are just the primitive ideas of a primitive people who didn't really know how babies are made. Now listen, those primitive people knew exactly how babies were made. Just read Genesis chapter 38, and the story of Onan. Try it, maybe not for family worship, but read it, and you'll know, you'll know that they knew. When the Bible says that God is the giver of life, it's not dismissing human agency. What it's saying is that ultimately the tiniest embryo cannot exist apart from his will. Which means whenever we snuff out a life by the evil of abortion, we are taking what God has given. What God has given. Now, we often hear people say, my body, my choice. But the body in question isn't her body. It's her baby's body. And God is the one who created that body. Because children are a gift from the Lord. Some might reply, well, what if I don't want that body growing in my body? To those women, we would want them to understand a second truth about children not only are children from God, but children are a gift. Look at verse 3 again. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb. Listen, a reward. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Children are not an inconvenience, they are not an obstacle. They are not a blight upon civilization. They are 
a reward. Now, perhaps no generation needs to hear this more clearly than our own. Let me tell you one reason why. In 1968, a man named Paul Ehrlich wrote a book called The Population Bomb. He predicted that in the 1970s, in the 1970s, hundreds of millions of people would starve to death due to overpopulation. When he wrote that book, there were three and a half billion people on the planet. Now there are over eight billion of us. The famines that Ehrlich predicted never happened. Even though world population, the world population has doubled, our ability to feed each other has tripled. Poverty is at an all-time low worldwide compared to what it was back then. And yet, even though Paul Ehrlich was proved catastrophically wrong, people live and talk and act as if he was right. For example, the Dalai Lama warns that overpopulation is a very, very serious issue. The United Nations sponsors a World Population Day every year to raise awareness about the so-called problem of overpopulation. Elites all over the globe are arguing that the only way to deal with the, the global warming crisis with climate change is to reduce the number of people on the planet. Some countries, like China, created a one-child policy in order to combat overpopulation in their part of the world. Now they can't get people to have kids, even though their population is declining. Our country, the United States of America, has adopted its own one-child policy, not through legislation, but through preferences. In his book, What to Expect When No One is Expecting, a demographer named Jonathan Last argues that a number of factors like delayed marriage, increased divorces, increased abortion, increased use of birth control, the escalated cost of raising children, an increase in pets, and even something like car seat laws have created an American culture where most Americans are having fewer children than ever before. So in the 1800s, the fertility rate, which is the average number of children a woman will have in her lifetime for white American women was about 7.04. So the average white American woman had about seven kids in her lifetime. By, let me get the year right, the last time the, the fertility rate was calculated, I think it was 2019, for roughly the same demographic, it's 1.3. And it's not just an American problem. In 1979, the world's fertility rate was six, meaning the average woman in the world had six children. Today, it's two and a half. I don't know how you have half a kid, but that's another story. Now, we could talk at length. And if you want to talk to me at length, I'll talk to you at length about why shrinking fertility rate is like a slow form of national suicide. But far more important than what the average American thinks about children is what Christians think about children. That's what I care about. What do Christians think about children? And statistics suggest that while the average American Christian is more pro-life than their neighbors, we aren't necessarily more pro-children than our neighbors, or at least not by much. 
Believing children are a gift should change more than our beliefs on abortion. It, yes, it should make us against abortion, but it should also make us for procreation. Now, you don't have to look far if you know me and my family, that I count myself among one of those that is for procreation. Rather than the all too common practice of younger Americans of being one and done, Christians should treasure children as a gift. Now, let me, let me stop and get really practical for a moment. What, what does this mean at street level? A couple things. Church. One way we show that we we believe this, we believe the Word of God, we believe that children are a reward, is by how much we treasure the ministry to children and parents in the life of the church. Are we willing, church, to continue investing in faithful and skilled leadership in kids and youth ministry? Are, are we willing to support and encourage parents through the painful years with young children? Are we willing not to get bent out of shape when the little kids make a little bit of noise around you on a Sunday morning? Show me a church with no noisy children, and I'll show you a church that's almost dead. So church, are we willing to treat children as a gift? Here's one. Are we willing to volunteer in children's ministry? Talk to me after the service. I'll give you a sign-up form. <laughs> what about to the singles in this room? If you're a single here, there is an order here. The goal is not merely to have kids, but to have kids in the context of a family. The gift of sexual intimacy is meant to be enjoyed in marriage alone. So Hebrews 13, verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So dear single brothers and sisters, don't pursue sexual intimacy outside of marriage. But if you have fallen here and God blesses you with a child, remember that the child is not a curse. It's a gift to be celebrated. Your sin should be confessed and your child should be loved. Another word to the singles. I, I, I hurt for my single brothers and sisters, maybe especially for my single brothers here because I've talked to many of you about this issue. Listen to me. The scriptures say, whoever finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. I, I'm a little concerned that some of our singles are so discouraged about the prospect of finding someone, they've just given up entirely. Dear single men and single women, if you're following Jesus, would you fight to order your life so that you're ready for a spouse if and when the Lord would give you one? And not everybody's gonna get married. It's okay. Jesus was single. Paul was single. Marriage isn't everything, but marriage is a good thing. It's a good thing. And so would you fight to order your life so that you're ready for that? Uh, married people, married people, do you view children as a gift? If you don't have kids, why not? Please don't answer that question out loud. 
I know that there are many couples who are unable to have kids. You couldn't tell by looking at us now, but believe it or not, for several years, Holly and I struggled with infertility. It was incredibly painful to watch our friends and families, family members having babies while we were unable. We know a little bit of the pain of infertility. We know a little bit of the pain of losing a baby through miscarriage. It hurts. It hurts. Listen, let me, I want you to hear me. That's you, Christian. You're not cursed because of that. I don't know why. God gives some people children and other people he doesn't. Or maybe he gives some people a whole parcel of kids and other people they get one, even though they want more. I don't know why God does that. But I know this. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. You are not under a curse. You are in Christ. Why he chooses to do that, I do not know. But I know that you can trust him. If you are able to have kids, but simply choose not to have kids, I would encourage you to examine that decision from a biblical worldview. Or to those of you that already have kids, have you ever stopped to examine what the Bible might say about how many kids you should have? Now we're really stepping on toes. Some of you are glad you're hearing this sermon at this stage in life where that's really not an option. (laughs) But to those of you that are young people, you need to pay attention to the final truth about children from our text, and that is that children are like arrows. Verses 4 and 5, like arrows and the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, this is, (laughs) there's some landmines here. Some have used these verses to suggest that because children are a gift from the Lord, Christian families should strive to have as many children as they possibly can. Those of you that know my story, you know that I'm one of 12 kids part of what some have called quiverful movement. Have as many babies as you can because blessed is the man who fills his quiver with him. Are you telling me that I got to have as many kids as I can, pastor? Well, pay attention. This is the good time not to take a nap. Yes, it is true that children are a blessing, but the Bible also teaches that children can become a curse. Listen to Proverbs 17, verse 25. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. So a large family filled with foolish sons and daughters can be a cause for great grief and bitterness for mom and dad. There's a pastor in Idaho named Douglas Wilson who helpfully writes something about this. And I don't often say this when I quote somebody, but it's important that you know this. When I quote somebody, that doesn't mean I'm endorsing everything that they say or everything about their ministry. Douglas Wilson is a guy who says some really helpful things and says a lot of really unhelpful things. Some of you know his ministry, others you don't, it's totally fine. But even a broken clock is right twice a day. And this particular time, I think Douglas Wilson is right. Listen to what he says about Psalm 127. He says, the psalm is not talking about the patter of little feet around the house, although, of course, that is nice. The psalm says that sons are like arrows to a man when he contends with his enemies in the gate. 
The blessing being referred to here is the blessing of grown sons, well brought up and prepared for battle. This is the result of a man spending himself for several decades on his children. If a man has a large number of sons and he has not reared them properly, he has a quiver full, all right, but it's a quiver full of grief, crooked and broken arrows. So hear me, hear me clearly. The Christian's goal is not to have as many children as is humanly possible, as if the art of parenting was just the art of baby making. Christian parenting is much bigger than that. Our goal is to have as many children as we can raise faithfully. Listen to William Plummer again. His commentary on Psalms is very helpful. He says, the blessing of a full quiver is not so much the quantity of our offspring, but the quality of our children's character. He says, by their well-earned characters, even more than by their numbers, they became a tower of strength to protect their father's feebleness. This means, this means that a smaller family is not necessarily disobedient. And a bigger family I grew up in a culture where every time you saw a big family, you'd say, look at that great Christian family over there, regardless of anything we knew about that family. Bigger family does not necessarily mean more godly because the goal is not merely as many kids as you can have, but faithfully parenting them. So parents, moms, dads, whether your quiver is a tiny little quiver and you're full with one or two or three, or you got a big quiver and you're ready for a bunch of kids, you have a God-given responsibility to raise those children to be arrows. Now, what's an arrow do? When I was a teenager, I got into bows and arrows for a little bit. I know enough to know that the goal of it is to shoot it, right? Not to be right here, but to go. Failure to launch, not a good thing with a bow and arrow. Also, not a good thing with kids. The goal, parents, the goal is to teach your children to grow into responsible adults who are able to provide for their families one day, who can balance a checkbook, change a tire, interact with people, speak for themselves, and on and on and on. So here's what you need to do, mom and dad, especially you've got little ones. Look at what adulthood should be. That's the arrow, that's the target. Look at where they are now and work backwards. So here's a really simple example. Um, we knew with our young kids that we wanted them to be able to interact with strangers. Not in a weird stranger danger sort of way. We just wanted them to be able to talk to people, right? I mean, we can be honest and say we've met some young people that they don't know how to talk to people. They're good at texting, but a conversation, that's hard. We wanted our kids to be able to have conversations. So we'd go to Chick-fil-A, and the kid wants, you know, uh, wants to order their Happy Meal or trade their toy for an ice cream cone. We say, Phoebe, Jonah, Zoe, you go up, and you tell them. And you see, little, you know, as little as this high, going up to the counter. Can I please change the Happy Meal toy for an ice cream cone? Say, what's the point of that? You're teaching them, you're teaching them the direction that you want them to go. So parents... Listen, our job is not merely to have babies or to hover over them, but to prepare them to launch like arrows, to prepare them for responsible, faithful, healthy, holy adulthood. 
This means, moms and dads, until we launch our children as responsible, self-sufficient adults, we've got a lot of work to do, don't we? And church, this means that we have a job to help the moms and dads to do it well. That's one reason why we have baby dedication services here to help parents commit and for the church to commit to help the parents. I want you to hear this before we conclude. The only real and lasting solution to the culture of death is to look once more to the God of life. About 1,600 years ago, a pastor in North Africa named Augustine preached a sermon on this psalm. And he said that more than anything else, this is a psalm that should direct our hearts to Christ. Jesus came to build a house, not of wood and stone, but a household of faith. And Jesus did not labor in vain. He, he lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death, then was laid down in the grave to rest. And three days later, he rose from the dead so that he could become the firstborn of many brothers. Whoever trusts in Jesus will be adopted into the family of God and the Father's quiver is filled with millions upon millions upon millions of men, women, boys, and girls from every tribe and tongue. And in the Spirit's, with the Spirit's power, we are sent out as arrows into this culture of death so that they might see and know Christ. That is our main goal. The main goal of the church is not to be a, an arm of the pro-life movement, but to point people to Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gift of your beloved son. We pray for the moms and dads in this room, for the singles, for the grandparents, whatever stage of life we're in, help us to be faithful to the church to those that are married, to those that aren't, to those that have kids, to those that don't, to all of us that call this church home, may we do our part to help the children thrive in this church, to grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to be prepared for adulthood and to be sent out as arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior to declare the glories of Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing together?